Season 2 of the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mack. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. You can find us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com, on Twitter at Podcasting Light, and on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. On December 27th, 2015, the legendary cinematographer Haskell Wexler, ASC, passed away at the age of 93. He lived an incredible life, including a tour in the U.S. Merchant Marine during World War II, and had an amazing career running from 1953 through his death, including winning two Academy Awards. His first big-budget feature as a cinematographer was Elia Kazan's America, America in 1963. In 66, he was the cinematographer of Mike Nichols' Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, for which he won the last-ever Academy Award for Best Black-and-White Cinematography. The year after that, he was the cinematographer for the Oscar-winning In the Heat of the Night, starring Sidney Poitier. His work on that was extremely notable because it was the first major Hollywood film shot in color to be lit properly for a person of African descent. In 2014, our friends at the Cinematic Community Podcast released a show featuring their interview with Haskell Wexler. Both in light of his recent passing and the fact we've had so little information from the film world on this show, we'd like to share it with you now. Cinematic Community features the art and craft of movie making and the stories that define it, and is the brainchild of Louis Normandin, an LA-based cameraman who has worked on feature films and television of all sizes for the last 15 years. He's also cast plenty of light himself as a gaffer and electrician. His co-host and producer is Brian Hart, a first assistant director, unit production manager, and line producer in the independent film world, who is a third generation of a filmmaking family and who also happens to have been my best man. If you like what you hear, and I think you will, check out Cinematic Community on iTunes, on Twitter, on Facebook, and at their website, cinematiccommunitycast.com. They're readying their second season for launch now, with more full-length interview shows, like their interview with Ken Polk, sound designer and four-time Emmy winner, as well as episodes that feature questions answered through a series of comprehensive interviews, like, when is too much visual effects considered cheating? Now relax and enjoy Haskell Wexler ASC at Cinematic Community. Cinematic Community! Information overload. I might have to just run out of the room and leave a big Kool-Aid manhole on the wall. Cinematic, cinematic community. Tell people not to swing the mic around. <laughs> that's a good. That's, that's a good point. You know, I have no problem with you telling people that. That seems like an important safety tip. Cinematic community: the art and craft of movie making, the stories that define it. Welcome to Cinematic Community. I'm your host, Louis Normandon. With me is podcast producer and co-host, Brian Hart. Hey, what's going on? Today we have a special show. Uh, it's an awesome show. Haskell Wexler, ASC, came down to join us at Cinematic Community Studios, and we had a great time. Haskell had a ton of stuff to talk about. Um, we had a lot of really engaging questions for him, and he just served us up gold the whole time. The research really paid off. And here he is, Haskell Wexler, ASC. Uh, we've done our recording intro already, introducing who you are. Um, so I'd like to kind of roll into this a little more conversationally, if that's okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, of course, you you said you've you've done who I am, and that uh, automatically uh, becomes a question because uh, I've been spent my whole life trying to discover that. And so, if you have in your introduction, uh, I'll, I'll I'll ask for a print. I'll, I'll give it my best, okay. and um, we can make sure that. Yeah. So, get the basics out of the way. Uh, a two-time Academy Award-winning cinematographer. Uh, nominated five times, and you were one of six cinematographers who's got a star on the Walk of Fame. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just in that world, but you do so much more mm-hmm. for lots of lots of people all around the world. Um, I would say influential. I would say progressive. I would say a philanthropist. Um, and although I may not be able to break it down into specifics uh, the way you can, yeah, I'll I'll be giving it my best as we go forward. So your first credit was in 1953, as it's listed by IMDb, um, The Living City. Was this a documentary? Yes, it was a documentary about uh, the beginning of uh, public housing projects in Chicago, which was a, uh, a good step that sort of came out of the Depression. And um, 
it was when the government felt that people should have low-cost housing and they subsidized houses for, uh, for people who uh, didn't have a lot of money. And what was your... Uh, I was cameraman with uh, a director named uh, John Barnes. Um, we were, uh, at that time, uh, we were working for Encyclopedia Britannica making educational films. So you grew up in Chicago, correct? Yes. Um, what was Chicago? I've been to Chicago a whole bunch of times. My, I have, my father's side of the family is from Chicago. Three generations of bartenders, uh, which became pharmacy and lots of other things uh, in, uh, in Chicago. You know, this is years dating back, years back. And yes. as a kid, I got to grow a whole bunch uh, to Chicago and then during the summer. Loved it. What was Chicago like in the 50s? Well, uh, I could only say it's from a uh, very uh, from a young guy, but uh, uh, Chicago had a sense of of community, uh, and uh, and it was sort of breaking through a little bit uh, because of the South Side, uh, which was mostly all black, uh, but um, also um, because of the uh, New Deal. They had um, government subsidies for artists, um, for um, for uh, training people. It was um, it was a way to um, to beat the depression in a human in a human way by uh, just training people and and having the government pay for a kind of education. There was public uh, public theater, for example. Yeah. Um, a lot of your films uh, have been based out of Chicago over the years, um, and some of them being documentarian. Um, one of the questions I had in the back of my mind going forward was, mm. have you ever done a documentary or been involved in a documentary that you weren't necessarily 100% behind the cause or that you found something along the way that distracted you, that this wasn't necessarily what you thought it was when you started? I'm not sure if I've ever done a documentary. What was that? Where you realized, um, or maybe somebody had hired you to do the documentary, and you weren't necessarily behind that cause, or that you just started shooting on a topic and then discovered maybe this wasn't what I thought it was. Yes, no, I, I appreciate that question because um, uh, making a documentary has to be a learning process for the documentary filmmaker. Of course... I never went into a documentary where my preconceived notion was diametrically opposed to my ethics, if I can use a fancy word. But um, no, um, I like when I made the Bus Riders Union film. Uh, I I learned so much about our city. I rode the buses. I met the people, and it was an exciting thing for me. You started making, um, you started off doing more documentary style films, but you go into Medium Cool, which is kind of a hybrid film, and the first, in essence, the first that I know of, um, of well, the first and the biggest at that time to take a film and shoot scenes that are part of something much bigger, like the protests that were going on. Um, some of the scenes that you shot involved that as your backdrop, which is what the movie was about and why it was so acceptable. Well, uh, what you're saying is, is a popular description. Actually, the script for Medium Cool was registered to the Writers Guild uh, at least two and a half months before. Uh, the only difference was I knew there would be some um, action in Chicago mm -hmm. uh, because I knew the a progressive movement who was against the war was going to uh, put on a show. And so um, uh, so I, in the earlier script, I had just some uh, police um, um, action. Um, and also I had, I had read police um, booklets that gave advice to... Um, police of how they deal with demonstrators and 
Um, so one of the things which was in the script is that they had a gas, not tear gas, which would cause the demonstrators to lose control of their bowels. And um, But they there was this asterisk on it is that they were uh, concerned about its directional capabilities. So in my original script, I had cops... Um, <laughs> <laughs> if you can say that on the air. You're good. We'll work it out. But it was in the original script. Wow. Are you revisiting cool, uh, Medium Cool? Are you revisiting that in any way? Pardon? I picked up a blurb somewhere that you were possibly revisiting uh, Medium Cool in some way, shape, or form. Oh, well, well the, um, the Chicago Tribune had an article about... Um, the Occupy people coming to Chicago demonstrating against NATO, and they said uh, the mayor said that it's not going to be like Haskell Wexler and Medium Cool in in Chicago that the police and the government was going to make sure that they that the city really is locked down, and so um, when I saw my name was there and mentioned 1968. I went back to Chicago and shot a film called Four Days in Chicago. What kind of narratives do engage you? <laughs> I, I engage in any narratives that, that uh, I want to explore. I want to have the experience. I mean, uh, take the ideas about uh, the Vietnam War, which was prevailing uh, heavily. Uh, so I, uh, I not only shot uh, Introduction to the Enemy, where I was in Vietnam with Jane Fonda, and also I made a picture called Coming Home, um, which also dealt with, um, with the, the problems that we had as Americans relating to the, to the troops and people, because uh, a lot of pro-war people felt that we were uh, against uh, our own troops, which we were not. I hope you can take this for the joke that it's meant to be, but can you still sit down for a popcorn movie every now and again? Sit down for who? Uh, like a popcorn movie, like a movie where I just, you know, I'm just going to eat some popcorn and there, there drink some is, Coke. There is no such thing as a popcorn movie. All messages, all, all films have a, a story. I mean, I worked on the Ozzy and Harriet show, for example. You know, what more popcorn TV it was but you notice that when when she when when Harriet goes to the refrigerator it was a modern frigidaire when the kid was bad they sent it upstairs to their room yeah uh, uh, also how people are dressed people who how they speak the things that are important to them all those are are um, not just popcorn but they are sending some kind of message. Same with smoking, mm -hmm. same with all, all kinds of things which we just, just accept. But somebody decides that that kind of story will sell. Understood. Um, so let me go back a little bit then, and can we talk about uh, the company that you own with Conrad Hall, Wexler Hall? Uh, yeah, Conrad... Hall was my personal friend uh, when he graduated from uh, USC. Um, I, I, I taught a little bit at, at USC, and and um, and um, but we were just friends. And then uh, then we were also making feature films. But uh, we we decided to form our own company, making commercials. But I had been making commercials for quite a while. In fact, I've I've made commercials and documentaries my whole filmmaking life. I I 100% believe you. Um, um, I know that there's a well. I guess that would be um, how that came together was after he graduated and after you had maybe left the school. Oh, you guys decided yeah, to form the company. Many many years he had already. Um, shot some pictures, good pictures. What years? What years were those? Uh, were those when that company was active-ish? Uh, About. Uh, uh, it was in the sixties, I guess. Yeah, sixties, maybe a little later. Was it during that time that he went off to go do the marble commercials along the way? The marble commercials, the cigarette commercials. Uh, yeah, uh, actually. Um, Conrad and I um, made Marlboro commercials. We made um, 
yeah. Uh, but we we um, at one point we decided not to make them. Yeah, anymore. that was kind of the story that I had heard. Oh uh, well, we we really liked making them because the advertising agency guys were really good, and uh, we were down on the Four Sixes Ranch. We got to know the cowboys who would you know sort of fight amongst themselves of who was going to be in the commercial because they made residuals and so forth. Uh, but. Um, after we knew how um, how bad cigarettes were for people, uh, we decided we were not going to make cigarette commercials. This was still in the 60s at this point? Yeah, I think it was the late 60s. Or I, I don't know exactly. Fair enough. I'm but not the, but the, the commercials that we had made were very, very popular. And, um, and um, so... So when we taught the agents, advertising agency they weren't going to make them anymore, uh, they were really sorry. And they came back about um, um, two months later to uh, our office at Wexler Hall, and they said, we, can, uh, we would like you to make a terrific Marlboro commercial. And I said, well, I told you we don't. We don't make do a cigarette, and uh, and uh, the guy from it was Neil McBain, you know, because we were friends with the advertising agency guy, and so he said, "Well, look at this is for Europe," so uh, so um, I so, but I, I said, uh, Neil, Neil, we don't we 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 don't make cigarette commercials, and he said, "Look at Haskell, you we're going to shoot in Chinichita in Italy for." part of it and then um, and, and you can take your own crew yeah and um, and so I said Neil look at it. we don't do cigarette commercials and then um, then he said look you can have four days off with your crew in, in Paris if you want or London on the way back and um, so I think my voice got weaker and weaker. <laughs> I'm saying we don't cigarette commercials, and then, and then, um, then he told me the budget, and it was a really big budget on commercials. So then I said, um, "Well, Neil, um, you ought to talk to Conrad." And Conrad was in his office down the hall a little bit, and uh, and so I said, as Neil went in to see Conrad. I sort of knew the price on my conscience because I was thinking, well, if Conrad says yes, then of course I split the profits with him. And um, fortunately, I didn't have to make that decision because Conrad said no. Huh. But that kind of that kind of conflict reflects itself in a lot of my relationship when you work with people. Um, how much you'll do just for the buck. And this is what, one of the things that, that challenges all artists um, and in one way or another. And it's not just, yeah, it's, and it's not just the film world, the entertainment world of movies. It's, it's all art and the less money that there is yeah. as we... And we, we can talk about this further, and I'm sure we will, about the, the expansion of the government and what that does to education. But all in its due proper time and place, yeah. uh, for sure. Has there ever been another time where somebody came to you to do a project and you and it didn't matter how much money was on the table or anything else? You said, no, I do not want to do this project. Oh, many, many times because was- when I became, when I was sort of hot as a, as a cameraman, um, there were a lot of scripts that, that I, I didn't... Um, I didn't like it. didn't fit in with what I thought was right and wrong. And, of course, I don't turn them down and say, look, it's a stupid goddamn script. You know, I'm not going to do it. You just, um, just, I mean, one of the advantages of having some economic base uh, was to be able to be selective. And, uh, and uh, I thank my parents <laughs> for giving me that. Otherwise, man, I would do like everyone else. A, a job's a job, you know? Yeah. They had me at Italy on the last thing. I don't, I don't <laughs> really care what we were doing. <laughs> okay, so um, along the way, uh, you met George Lucas when he was still a teenager um, because you guys had a mutual interest in cars. Uh, is, that, is that true? Well, um, yeah, I had Haskell Automotive, which was a race car team, and I had 
uh, race cars, and actually I do a little driving for the um, sports car club earlier then, and I was in the pits uh, for a race, and uh, uh, one of the mechanics, Erickson his name was, brought a kid over to me, uh, and he said that, that, you know, that he wanted to meet me because he was interested in and going into films and so forth. And so um, I was introduced to George that way, and then um, I helped him make uh, THX, and he did the casting for um, for a number, for um, American Graffiti, which I shot for him. And, um, and um, I've been in touch with him and working with him. Uh, he co-produced... Uh, the, the uh, Latino film I shot in Nicaragua, and uh, he's also um, he's also a very close personal friend. Latino looks like a very good movie. I haven't seen it, but mm-hmm. I watched the trailer and I try to pick up on as much as I can. Um, some of those shots that you have in there, they look really, really good. Yeah. Like the one of the parachute where the parachute mm-hmm. falls over the guy, and this was in 1969. Yeah, 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 I guess so. Yeah. Uh, um, no, I'm sorry, 1985. Yeah. 1985, and uh, there's some really good-looking stuff in there. Um, you know, uh, going back to Medium Cool for just a second about using material that was uh, shot in as part of something bigger, like uh, the protests in, in Medium Cool, um, or I also wanted to comment that Easy Rider, um, I felt like when I watched Easy Rider uh, after looking at what I saw from Medium Cool, that Easy Rider had done some of that same stuff, which was also released in the same year, where they would shoot during Mardi Gras and during Easy Rider, like they shot during, um, if not a Mardi Gras, they call it a jazz funeral, where um, they have everybody walk as part of, uh, of a celebration, if you will. And so they shot some of those scenes in New Orleans as part of this bigger, bigger process. And it had come out in the same year, and I thought it was worth commenting on that before that, I don't think that we really saw much of that. At least I can't think of another film that was before 1969 that did that, that I can mm-hmm. see, unless it was like a straight-up like propaganda video from some other country where you see you know everybody's celebrating i just don't think that it's uh i just don't think that that's been done elsewhere that i know of uh yeah i know i know quite a bit about easy rider because i was supposed to do, uh, do it i met with phil specter and, and dennis and um um but then um because um uh, because of uh, the union i was just being accepted into the union um, I couldn't take the job, and uh, a guy named Vilas Lapanex, who was um, a Hungarian who just came over, and he needed the job. And um, um, the, the different from Medium Cool is everything in Medium Cool was shot in in the actual sequence. You know, that means uh, everything. Did, uh, he's listed on, on Easy Rider is listed as having Laszlo Kovacs as the cinematographer. Oh, I guess it was Laszlo, yeah, but the beginning uh, was um, was Lapinex. It was shot in sixteen millimeter. The stuff in uh, New Orleans, so that was shot by. Uh, it shot actually it was shot in sixteen millimeter too. Uh, while we were going through your resume, which is ridiculous. Um, we were, we were going through different films about what we wanted to talk about. Uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And we had a flashback to like eighth and ninth grade English class because we would read these books and then watch our movie. Mm-hmm. Um, we were just blown away by all this stuff. In the Heat of the Night and Thomas Crown Affair. Um, but I got stuck on uh, The Babe and 61 because uh, these are two of the of the ten best baseball movies ever made. I'm a huge Mets fan. Are you a baseball fan? Did you? Uh, yes, I am. I made a baseball movie with Billy Crystal, and um, you remind me that John Goodman played Babe Ruth, right? Right. And he said that he's the only actor in the world that had to lose weight to look like Babe Ruth. <laughs> the Babe would have about eight hot dogs before he would start a game. So. Uh, uh, I, I appreciate that. Uh, are you a Cubs fan or a, or a Sox yeah, fan? Yeah, Cubs, Cubs fan, absolutely. Wrigley Field, man. Uh, the other one that stuck out was Hail Columbia because it's uh, I have it in my IMAX space set of movies, and, and Doug worked on it, although Doug told me you and, and he weren't on set uh, for any of the same stuff. Uh, Could you say that again? For, uh, for, uh, for Hail Columbia. 
the the IMAX film about the space shuttle in the early eighties. Uh, yeah, yes, I I shot that. I I, I um, yeah, Hale Columbia was the arrival of the first space shuttle. Right. I right. shot that in IMAX. Yes. Um, it's one of the most presented shorts in history because it played on a loop for decades at Kennedy Space Center and at uh, uh, at Huntsville at the at the space camp. Um, so it's, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's some kind of record. I don't, I don't think anyone's actually written down how many times a short was played, uh, but uh, it's, it's, it's certainly one of the most presented movies in history, and it's great. It was very early in IMAX, and of course I shot a number of uh, IMAX movies afterwards, um, including ones with the Rolling Stones in Europe. Uh, and Richard Pryor, you've done some great, uh, uh, some great <laughs> stuff. Yeah, that was a good experience. So the, the the Richard Pryor live at Sunset Strip. Yeah. Um, now, how many? Uh, like, I imagine you had more than just a few cameras there. Uh, yes, we did. I think we had three. Three cameras. Yeah. And it was just, um, it was just. I mean, because that is, I'm a big comedy fan. I'm a huge mm. comedy fan, just in general. Yeah. And uh, Richard Pryor is quintessential comedy that every comedian has watched. And that it was an HBO special, right? Or, uh, I think it ultimately went there, yes. Yeah. I've just always been a big fan. Um, going back real quick, um, the Museum of Science and Industry out of Chicago. Did uh, are you, I, I imagine you've been. Oh, yes. yes. It's I a, used to take my kids there. It was a marvelous place. And my grandparents took me there every year <laughs> when I would go visit. And, um, so did Hale Columbia ever play there at the Museum of Science and Industry? I, I don't know whether Hale Columbia played in the Museum of Science and Industry. I do know that um, the coal mine, I don't know if the coal okay. mine was still at the museum, where it was a simulated coal mine where you would go down, in, and then when I, when I shot Mate One, uh, I also used my experience in that fake coal mine uh -huh. as well by, um, um, because it's really shoved, tough shooting black people in a coal mine with no uh, and um, so I was able to take some little uh, aluminum foil and and throw that on the on the walls so that there was really reflections from from the coal background but I like that picture of um, mate one a lot I think uh, yeah it was nominated for Academy Award too all over the place. Yeah. Um, I do have one quick question about that. Um, did you ever see in the, uh, not about Mate One, but going back to that Science Center, uh, did you ever see that they have their movies projected in I uh, Omnimax as opposed to IMAX? I think that must have been after my time. It was, it was definitely, well, it was there, and I've never seen it anywhere else except the Space Center, uh, the Space Center in Chicago. I just, I figured I'd ask at least. Yeah. Right on. Well, I'll get in trouble if I don't ask, um, about Blade Runner, you're listed as an, as, an, as additional photography. Uh, what did you do on uh, on Blade Runner? Um, uh, Jordan Cronin was with was shooting, and he um, he had to need some time off. He had uh, I forget exactly what it was called, but it was sort of serious, and so uh, I just filled in for Jordan, and I shot scenes with my niece um, Daryl Hannum. And um, some of them were dancing scenes, and I even forget which ones. But it was all in Geordie's style of lighting and so forth, so that I just helped carry the ball, and I was surprised they gave me credit for the little I did. There was a movie of yours that I saw in 2004 that I feel like no one else saw, which was Silver City. <laughs> And I, was, well, I'm, I'm, I think I, I don't feel bad. <laughs> no one else saw it. <laughs> I don't. I think Silver City uh, was 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 uh, rushed and not one of John's better scripts, and um, it, it didn't work as well as we hoped it would. Unfortunate. Um, I enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> That's good. But, but it, maybe it was right up my alley at the time. Um, yeah. But I can get into that. And, of course, it had great actors as well. And it looked it looked, it looked looked great. Yeah. Just, just didn't have the story and the substance. And I guess they didn't put the marketing behind it, maybe. Yeah. The, um, I didn't even know too much of the story. Usually with, with John, I, I study the script and so forth. But it was sort of a rushed affair, as I remember. Okay. So I'd like to talk about the more recent, uh, the more recent things that people have come to know you for, and I would start that off with "Who Needs Sleep." 
I remember when I first saw it, and I know at the time that I was working a whole heck of a lot of hours. Um, just so you know, I mean, I've come up as a camera assistant, grip and lighting technician professionally for, um, you know, and at the time I was working ridiculously long hours and not hating it. At the time I was 24 or 25. It's different. Uh, I think you, you, most people will cross a certain point that they either have other things going on in their lives that they need to manage or their body just can't take it. And at a certain point that does become dangerous and there's much to talk about. Um, but I remember when I saw that documentary um, and I know that that's something that you mm. f- firmly believe, uh, root your beliefs day, in. Uh, this, this issue, uh, we have this thing with General Motors going on, where General Motors um, knew that there was a device in their car. It was like the Ford Pinto. You forgot the thing. And yet they, um, they kept it out there, even though they, they knew that people would, um, uh, would, be, would, would die or be injured. And yet, uh, for economic reasons, um, they uh, went ahead with it. And that's just being good business. I mean, good business will work you uh, longer <laughs> for uh, less money and, uh, and dodge whatever safety things that they think um, may be necessary to, for the bottom line. And that's sort of a, a summary, uh, an unfriendly summary about the relationship between workers and business. And that's the case with, with extreme hours. We're making uh, films for entertainment. And uh, also it's a very profitable, the second biggest export from America, believe it or not, are things of uh, exporting. And... Um, so there's no reason to do anything um, that impairs your health and also your ability to make decisions because it's like being drunk. And to tell people anywhere in the world, actually, here we are in show business, which we love and which when you said you worked, you really wanted to do it and, and you enjoyed it and it was an important part of life. And, and, and they... They uh, feed on, on that, and, and there's no reason why you can't enjoy it and have some sanity about it, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I feel like the, there are plenty of young, passionate people out there that just want nothing more than to be working in the business and will do so at whatever yeah. cost they need to. Like this uh, Sarah Jones originally. Is exactly what I'm uh, talking Sarah about. Sarah Jones, you know, she, look, I, I know the feeling, and I'm sure to get the shot. You know, get the shot. And it's not just the employers are forcing you to, although they didn't get permissions and all that thing. It's something inside that um, that some of us who think, you know, <laughs> who get the kicks out of making pictures. Um, and we do. And uh, so we have to... Um, we have to know that what's happening to us or not just us, to our families and so forth. The landscape is changing, so I feel like for young people that are getting into the business now, it, it will not be the same 30 years from now when it's time for them to make those decisions. So I think having someone that speaks out vocally that says, hey, you know, it doesn't have to be this way is very important. I think you fill that gap. Thank you. That's good. Um, Do you think that part of the problem is that um, other unions and other industries, uh, you know, coal miners or whatever, they would set maximums on how long they could work. Um, but all the film uh, locals seem to get were penalties, economic penalties for uh, going too long, uh, time and a half, double time, meal penalties, but have never really been able to put their foot down for how long uh, a shoot could go if producers have the money. Uh, a 30-hour day is, is technically possible if they don't mind everyone being in triple time by the end of it. Um, what's your feeling that the unions have never really put their foot down on them? Well, that, that, what you're saying is absolutely true because uh, overtime uh, was supposed to be a deterrent to extreme hours. And it turns out that overtime is not a sufficient deterrent uh, monetarily uh, to um, to employers, is there ever discussion of raising those numbers to a point where they catch up with you know now they're doing two hundred million dollar films, so telling a producer it's going to cost an extra five thousand dollars you know doesn't mean very much. Is there ever discussion at the union level to make the penalty so harsh that uh, you know keeping to a twelve hour turnaround becomes 
the law on set because yeah. it would just it would ruin a show without it. Uh, yes, there are discussions, but uh, the unions and OSHA, which is supposed to be interested in occupational safety and health, uh, have not uh, responded uh, to the obvious thing. Uh, yeah, obvious safety hazard, um, and uh, the union is is um, willing to um, to put uh, how many hours he work on the negotiating shelf, but it shouldn't be on hours. It's just to say that we don't, any more than we don't work in rooms that are known to be asbestos. We know it's bad. We don't do it. It's not done. If anyone, anyone is a part of that, um, there, there are criminals. And, um, there are there are other issues here that were that are on the forefront of what you're talking about, but there's also some, maybe some out of the box solutions that might be at least presentable down the line. Has it been brought up to to anybody on, on any notable level um, the possibility of maybe replacing thirds after a certain period of time? Uh, for those who don't know, thirds in our business are people that are electricians or grip people that are more easily replaceable because it's very hard to replace your cinematographer after hour sixteen. But maybe you can send home some electricians to be replaced by fresh electricians so that we can perhaps save lives or uh, transportation provided by Teamsters, which is extra hourly on them, but uh, provides us with an option to reduce or uh, you know, minimize uh, people driving home like Brent Hirschman, uh, you know, part of FTAC and 12 on 12 off, like pre- prevent the possibility that people are going to die while they're trying to get home because they worked a 16-hour day. Is that a possibility or has that been presented? The, the, one of the aspects has been presented, and it says that um, if, if you feel fatigued, you go to the first assistant director and you say, um, look, at, um, uh, um, I'm, I'm, I'm tired and I need uh, transportation, and then the company is supposed to be able to put you up in a nearby hotel, which is totally um, impractical. Uh, nobody individually is ever particularly in today's market is individually going to come up and say um yeah uh, i'm i can't cut the mustard right you do you it don't want the reputation as that guy exactly you want to do it as a team uh or like have your best boy speak for the the department or department head speak for the department uh, yeah, I mean, see, and it's not just union pictures because if the number of pictures that are made, all kinds, are are primarily not made by union people. Um, so it has to be a rule, um, a safety rule that that is uh, monitored by uh, by OSHA, and uh, it's just it's just we just don't do that. We don't put as a condition of employment that you have to do something which is proven to be un- unsafe and unhealthy. And also, the other overall thing is, why do we work? It's to have a life. It's to have a life, to be able to have a family. I can't tell you the number of things our organization, 12 on and 12 off stories, that we get from, from wives, uh, from from uh, teenage, I just had one recently, a teenage son that my my father comes home on Saturday morning and um, and he go, tries to go to sleep and he tries to be good and he's irritable to me and I don't get, I don't know my father because the weekend is a time that that I have. Right, and he doesn't you even, know. you know, he gets home at, as you, as you, I've heard you mentioned the term Friday. Um, we have another term, the FU Friday, um, is another term that goes out there. Um, but it's, uh, he doesn't get home until seven or eight o'clock in the morning and then he has to get some kind of sleep. So let's say he sleeps for four hours and then he's up at noon to try and start the day with his family, you know, and that's where that starts. And he's already down four hours of sleep. Um, you know, how do how to, it's, it's part of the, part of what is now becoming the norm. And for those that aren't ADs out there, keeping people late on a Friday night is a, a symptom of there being no turnaround. Uh, if your next shooting day is Monday, you can basically abuse the system as much as you want on a Friday night. It happens mostly yes. on, on TV shows. Um, but, but obviously, the, the shooting that fifth day as long as possible with no turnaround penalty um, gets yeah. abused constantly. 
You see, it, it has to be taken out of uh, the negotiating aspect of how many hours, what to turn them on. We have to say, what are we doing? We're making entertainment. We're making entertainment so people who own the product can make money. Okay? So there's no reason in the world uh, why we can't do everything in a civilized way. The rest of the world, um, as far as labor, uh, when, when we we have uh, when we say 12 out on 12 off, say, what the hell are you talking about? And also, labor gets um, t- uh, two, three weeks off a year. Uh, they have um, benefits for whether they have a, a child coming, uh, all these other things that uh, are erased from America. It's quite backward as far as um, protecting labor. Labor policies over the last uh, 25 years um, yeah. you know, or longer. Uh, but I would say, especially since the, the growth of uh, the growth of the central government out of D.C., I would say, uh, I, hey, maybe we could take it back since the end of the Vietnam War. I feel like our labor policies um, have not been going the way of the worker. Um, but we may or may not be, we may not dig into that too much um, going down that rabbit hole. Um, I will say this, in terms of negotiations, because that's what this comes down to, um, and if you want this from this consideration from the producers, there has to be a negotiation from Local 600 or the IATSE in general or whoever is at that bargaining table. We want something, and so they're going to make us give up something to get what we want. Isn't that generally how it would go? Yes. The, the, the point I'm trying to make is you don't negotiate your 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 health. You don't negotiate safety. In other words, uh, the IA internationally at the convention passed a, a good resolution which I wrote, but unanimously, which said that working these excessive hours and I'm sort of repeating myself is um, is harmful. And uh, saying all the other statistics that are out there about about um, uh, split shifts, about uh, night work, day work, the circadian factor, all those things are are human health and safety issues, and we don't negotiate them. But at least the union can say something about it loud and clear. Uh, to the public, because the information is out there in the public media. I just got a big article from the Chicago Tribune about um, about uh, sleep and sleep deprivation and how um, unsafe it is and how it actually affects aspects of your brain, not to mention you're susceptible to all kinds of disease. And also, it's not like I feel tired and therefore it's not, because the, the deadly aspects show come later because most of the guys including myself because I've done it is I figured okay well I, I can do it and, and I'll catch up on sleep yeah and you can't yeah you can't time to sleep when yeah. I'm dead is the, is yeah. the saying you might hear um, okay so let me make sure I understand you clearly the essence is that we don't negotiate that we go over their heads and have it written into law that is this way that's what you're suggesting um Yes, I think we have two fronts. My front is the union has made, international has made a good, honest statement, but they have not done anything about it. In order to work on films, for example, they have a, a thing called a safety passport. Yes. And I've sat in and I have, I'm okay on it, and I've, and, um, they they teach you good things that you like you don't get on a camera car if it's going more than 15 miles an hour you don't if a certain kind of smoke is on the set um, that's not forbidden it's okay you're it is forbidden but um, uh, but I said well and I was sitting next to a, a really good electrician guy and while the speech was being made he was. He was dozing off because they give you a test afterwards and um, because he had just come from work. And so, um, so I asked the, the instructor, I said, why don't you mention fatigue to tell the guys at least to try to be um, on guard? And he said he's told uh, not to mention that, that that is a, uh, an employer a union negotiating thing. 
Um, Which isn't necessarily on par with what you think with regard to how these regulations are set and what should be going down as uh, the company that administrates the safety passport is kind of like a middleman between OSHA and yeah. you know, just making sure that these uh, the, the information is it's like a lot of it's not a lot of things. It gets complicated through a lot of organizations or a lot of things because you have to begin with a fundamental thought about why we work and and what what is loving a life and how it relates to our work. And unless we unless we put in balance um, human values with with corporate values. Uh, then, um, then the conclusions are, are, are askew, and that's clear uh, in this General Motors case. It's true in, in so many things in our in our life. Yeah. Just recently, you were an awarded um, a humanitarian award from the Location, Locations Managers Guild of America. Um, which I've seen a, a bunch. They've gotten into variety in a bunch of other places this year. Uh, you know, for what they're talking about, which is some of the same things that we're talking about: the Sarah Jones story, safety on set, things of that nature. Um, how did that come to be? The Location Managers Guild of America Lifetime Humanitarian Award. I I, I don't know how that came to be, except I know that the uh, Teamsters Union are particularly upset uh, by um, these excessive hours and um and of course the producers say well you know they um they can rest they rest during the day well actually they don't just rest during the day i do find uh it's funny fun to joke about but beyond the jokes it's 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 really uh you know you really have to pay teamsters their due respect for the work that they do uh, and the long hours that they put in. There's no two ways about it. Yeah. Um, again, it's fun to joke about, and the Simpsons can make jokes about it, and that's fun and sure. funny. But it, there's a point where uh, if you don't respect that, well, then that's your your own your yeah. own fault, as it were. Yeah, they, 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 they drive the trucks. You're in one location, off you doesn't park in. And, um, and if there's a different... And also, they, um, they're there early, First one's there, yeah. always the last one's out, yeah. especially if there's a location manager, a uh, location yeah. move. Yeah. Uh, next one there, the longest, would probably be the first AD or yeah. second AD. You see, all, all over the world, and also early on here, a lot of great pictures were made on, on civilized hours. And that and at that time, the equipment was not as technologically advanced. Now, technological advances allow us to do things much faster and much easier than ever before. Just plain moving the camera, you know, and the dolly, you know. Um, so there's no reason why. There's no reason, you know. Uh, with such a long career, is there one big technological advantage that you've seen that you've really been impressed with? Is there any one big, uh, you know, a tech item on set that you that you thought, man, we really could use this in the fifties? One big uh, technological change, which changed a lot in our film business, is being able to have uh, a video assist. Um, video assist uh, again took the magic out of our hands as, as photographers. Um, and, um, and suddenly every producer is looking over your shoulder going, oh, that's in the shot? Yeah. And then also, theoretically nowadays with digital shooting, it has some advantage to, uh, uh, to new photographers, but it does, it does, um, it breaks out the, the mystic thing that we felt we, was in our hands, you know, um, and so it has changed. I mean, just before that, of course, cameras were not reflex. And I was the first one that you start using a reflex camera because normally we don't even see what the camera is seeing because of parallax and so forth. Uh, the, the eyepiece is not showing you what the lens is seeing because it's moved over just a little bit is what you're saying? Is what? Uh, talking about the parallax cameras and how the lens has oh, yes. moved over a little bit, so yeah. you're not yeah. seeing well, what the was um, being shot onto the film plane. Well, when I was talking about parallax, I was saying that uh, the taking lens uh, was different from the finder, and that um, when uh, 
when they had at that time they had rack over camera so then you could have the camera in the taking position look through it but not when you're shooting and to line and then align your finder so it gives you a rough position on the basis of where the focus is but if you're splitting the focus to kept the depth depth of field the operator has to know that when I'm cutting half of that guy's head off he's really full in the frame right um, so you've been navigating the entertainment business professionally for over 60 years. Fair assessment, six decades? That's true. Are you still having fun? Uh, you know, at this age, um, fun is not a good description. I, I, hate, I do get satisfactions, but um, I don't think I'll ever have the fun I had when I was younger, where... Um, where where I had the bug, you know? <laughs> um, the bug. Uh, that passion that you had when you first got started that's somehow still activated now? Um, well, I know, like, in shooting a documentary, um, when I got the shot, some little gremlin in me says, boy, that's good, because I'm shooting somebody, and I saw the tear on her eye. You know, and I and I moved in a little bit, a zoom slightly, but I'm not so it's obvious. And and then then when I cut the camera for another thing, I had that feeling, that satisfaction. Yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> um, is there any projects that uh, that lately you've seen or that you're a part of that you uh, you'd want people to to check out? Uh, quite a few documents. I saw a feature called a Fruitville Station which I thought was, uh, 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 Rachel was the young woman camera person. And in fact, I, she'd come to the office and I talked to her and I thought it was beautifully shot and, and also combined the feelings that you get in a, in a documentary without being what you think of as documentary. Fair enough. And the uh, actors were good, the director was good. Fruitville Station? Yeah, Fruitville Station. Excellent. It's really a good film. Well, thank you for sharing your satisfactions with us. <laughs> uh, it's been a great satisfaction to have you here. We really appreciate it, Mr. Wexler. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the questions. Thanks. What we want to do is uh, let everybody know what we have going on. Uh, please, uh, this podcast is available on iTunes, so if you get the chance, uh, log on to iTunes. You can find our links uh, directly there from our site, or you can go to any of our Facebook profiles. The information is all there, but you can go right to iTunes, search Cinematic Community, and it should pop right up. You can subscribe to it, and, uh, and then it will come to your ears at your beckoning call. Just subscribe, and you don't need to do anything ever again. You're good to go. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. You can use the contact form there to let us know what you think, and you can find all of our previous episodes there. We're also on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast and on Twitter at Podcasting Light. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. You can learn more about them at lamedrivers.com. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for downloading, and have a good show. Good